understand that at the time of the murder, you were walking along the beach. Run into anyone on this relaxing stroll? Welcome to Esoteric America, a podcast where we tour the strange, mystical, and esoteric pathways hidden beneath the surface of America. Join Mark, Tara, Roman, Chad, and a new local researcher each episode as we dive into our country's diverse regions, states, counties, cities, towns, neighborhoods, parks, etc. Leaving no stone unturned as we unravel the cult knots that tie history, culture, religion, all in with fringe elements that you may not have realized were at play in your own backyard. Today on Esoteric America, we'll be exploring Charleston, South Carolina with our guest, Kent Woods. Enjoy the tour. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again for episode five of Esoteric America, touring the strange, mystical, and esoteric threads woven into the fabric of North America. Join me, Roman, Chad, Tara, and a new local researcher each episode. We are joined by Kent Woods, who's going to be telling us all about his home or somewhere near his home. Charleston, South Carolina. Before we get to Kent, let's check in with our lovely co-host, Roman, over there on the West Coast. How are you, brother? I am I am feasible for the moment. I am currently existing within the the transition, you know? Ooh. The beautiful transition. Yeah. And and it's all good, man. I'm stoked to be here. I love the Carolinas. I've only been to North Carolina, but I am so very excited to hear about 
as South Carolina. So it's also great to be here with 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 Chad this time around because he missed out last time. But yes, you yes. know, it's it's just feels so much better now that Chad is here because gang he is, is my anchor together. and my rock. Oh, <laughs> and speaking <laughs> of, I have never been to South Carolina either. Chad, have you been to South Carolina? And how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks, guys. I missed you guys, too. No, I haven't been to South Carolina. I've done a little research into it previously, but don't know a lot about it. But I'm super excited to hear what Kent has to talk about tonight. I know there's, you know, Freemasons, pirates, ghosts, Mm. you know, Native Americans, ancient histories, mysteries. So I'm super excited to learn about it tonight. Agreed. Agreed, Tara is joining us and tara and i we're on the east coast as well have you ever been to south carolina tara never been to south carolina all right well we're all going there today with our guest kent woods kent welcome to the show welcome to esoteric america how are you hey i'm doing pretty good man thanks for having me y'all i appreciate it awesome awesome yeah and it's a pleasure to have you here you were a guest on my podcast almost a year ago You've been a supporter of mine and the show. My family thinks I'm crazy through our Patreon, and I appreciate you so much for that. And I couldn't think of a better person to tell us about Charleston, South Carolina. Did I pronounce that right, or do you guys say Charleston? You can throw the twang on there if you feel like it. Absolutely. Charleston. All right. Charleston. All right. So let's take it away. What? Maybe we'll start with this. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Kent, and and tell us maybe if you had any strange experiences in this area before you got into listening to this podcast and podcasts in general. I haven't, I gotta be honest. I haven't had too many paranormal, like strange experiences in my life. So like for a long time, I just didn't really consider it. I was about, you know, one of the kids like growing up that enjoyed going to the all the haunted places and, and investigating that stuff, but in no, like, you know, too serious of a manner. But yeah, I was born in a Charleston. So I was only there until I was two. And then I moved to a town called Ridgeland, South Carolina, which is just in the middle of Savannah and Savannah, Georgia and Hilton Head, South Carolina. So if you're going in between, it's kind of the midpoint or, you know, Charleston as well. It's about an hour to 30 minutes from all those places. Yeah, so I grew up in that region. I actually did live in Nashville for a couple of years, going to school over there, music tech school. Oh, wow. So I got some love for that town. Yeah, you're going to like that episode then for sure. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of cool stuff going on over there. But yeah, I mean, obviously, if you grow up in kind of the rural south, you spend a lot of time out in the woods. So things get a little bit peculiar occasionally, but you're never positive if that's just, you know, your mind playing tricks on you or something rustling like just an animal. I'm trying to draw up any good, you know, experiences I might have had, but nothing specific comes to mind. I have felt like I've been a little bit more receptive to it lately, but we'll see. It's still still nothing major has happened, you know. Well, certainly you have your eye on the right prize, at least we hope. I saw a little bit of your presentation, and I'm excited to see what you found. I mean, you, you've listened to my show and Roman's show, and I'm sure you've heard Chaz's or Chad's work, so I'm excited to see what you've dug up, brother. We want to get right into it? Yeah, let's get it. Cool. <clears throat> Are you guys still able to see that screen? No, you got to share it again. Oh, okay, I got you. Swamped out. All right. 
Yeah. So high strangest high strangeness in the low country. And I gotta be honest, I ripped the, the title from somebody I'll mention later on in the book. Essentially it's a play on their book. So Okay, yeah. nice. No shame in that. So I got the South Carolina flag there to the left and the Georgia flag to the right because the low country is essentially a geographical region that's maybe south of Columbia, South Carolina and north of, say, Jacksonville, Florida. That's probably a loose, you know, description that people will contest that, I'm sure. Maybe Myrtle Beach. But uh, yeah, and so I wanted to include some of that. And actually, I hadn't it made me pause and do some research on just like the basic Georgia flag. I, you know, I've seen the South Carolina flag and there's some interesting kind of connections I've seen people uh, draw to the symbolism that might be being depicted by that. But uh, I noticed in the Georgia flag, it's kind of just a third pillar on top of this kind of classical Masonic, mm-hmm. you know, Yakim and Boaz layout with the arch above. So I thought that was an interesting little observation, but also I took a closer look at the South Carolina state seal. And I noticed the, the Phrygian cap over in the left corner there, mm-hmm. you can see it on the lady's stick. And I'd never noticed that before. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. A homage to the alchemist. Was that? A homage to the alchemist. Yeah, seriously. Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't realize how old the Phrygian cap was either. So it made me do a little bit of, you know, background research on that. I, I just thought it was connected with the Jacobins in some manner. So, yeah. And then the little inscription on, on here says prepared in mind and resources. And then while I breathe, I hope, but in Latin, so. Figured I'd throw that in there. And uh, mm. I've got pretty loose little timeline just of the years that people don't really consider for this area. You know, we, we consider like early America being, I guess, 15 to 1700s, but more so in the northern northeastern region. Mm. But they were actually European explorers down here, you know, as early, admittedly, as early as 1521. Right. Mm. And uh, yeah, do you want me to just kind of like read off these real quick or are you guys? uh Yeah, no, go for it. So we have, it starts with the Spanish explorer Francisco Gordillo. He captures a Native American and returns to Spain in 1521. That's the earliest. Does it say where he captured that Native American? Not specifically that I could find. This was like a very loose timeline that I found and I kind of compiled my research that I could pinpoint the dates along with it. But somewhere in the low country region, either on the Sea Islands or maybe further down into Georgia or Florida even. But what I did find out, and this is, you know, veering off course a little bit, the town that I'm living in now, Beaufort, South Carolina, which is actually where Port Royal is, if you guys have ever seen Full Metal Jacket. That, that takes place, you know, like 15 minutes away from my house. Ooh. So, yeah, and, and there's a point out there off of that island, off of Paris Island, and that was the first admitted, like, a settlement in the area, and that was, I think, 15... Well, I think I have it on here. Yeah, I'm sorry. I guess I'll, I'll stick to the timeline just so I don't veer off course. Sorry, That's guys. all right. All right, so we got 1526, Spanish explorer Luke, Lucas Vasquez de Aileon. Do you guys know how to pronounce his name? Aileon? Aileon? A a long yeah that's a fine long. we we don't <laughs> we don't need to worry too much about pronunciation but uh, I got you so the Spanish are all over the place and it also seems like the Jesuits have set up there as well right right so early on as soon as the Spanish are coming they're bringing over missionaries to start establishing missions on the Sea Islands just off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. And so as they're doing that and trying to establish their settlements, you know, along the coastline, 
they're coming into contact with mostly in the low country region, the Guale Indians. I'm not sure if it's Wale or Guale, but I found out that that's the native native Americans that were most local to this region. And I really, like I, I've heard of a lot of the native American tribes that thrive in this area, but I hadn't really heard of them too much. And there's even an area on, I think St. Catherine's Island. That's just called Guale. It's the, the territorial name. So, yeah. And I just, I, I, you know, even though I've grown up here and lived here, I didn't realize how early European settlers have been here. And if you put it into context of it being, you know, several centuries that people have been, Europeaners have been bopping around this area. I don't know. It just changed the way that I kind of see see the area around me. So that was mm-hmm. interesting. And obviously, I found a lot of stuff that, you know, makes me question the official timeline that I'm presenting here. But I just thought it was good to give you guys a little bit of context for, you know, what we're working with, I guess. So, yeah, and there was a pretty famous rebellion from the Guale, and it was the Juanillo Rebellion. And that was on St. Catherine's Island as well. If you look into the story, it's pretty interesting because there's, I don't know, admittedly some some a foul play about, but I don't know. It still kind of gives gives the Jesuit priests involved a little bit more credit than I think might be warranted in this situation. But, uh, you know, who knows? We weren't there. So, yeah, in 1715, we'll jump ahead a couple of centuries. The, uh, the Yamasi War was fought between Native Americans and the European colonists. In 1729, South Carolina splits from North Carolina and becomes its official British colony. And 1788, South Carolina joins the United States as the eighth state. So we're starting all the way back in 1670 at the founding of Charleston. That's it. Well, actually, so this was this was Paris Island, or I'm trying to remember the name. I have it later on in, in, in all of this, but it was a point that was established by the Spanish originally, and then they abandoned it soon after. It was taken back over by the French, and then they held it out for a little while, reconquered by the Spanish, and then it was totally, you know, just abandoned completely up until, I guess, English settlers came back into the area. And started to re resettle, but there's a there's a monument out there now, and it says that it's one of the first places officially established in Northern America by the European colonists. So I thought that was pretty fascinating because I had no idea it was out there. You know, it's a military base, so you can't really go out there unless you have some credentials. Mm, right. So yeah, and I'm gonna start us off with a little bit of the learning about the Native Americans that were in the area because I found a lot of interesting stuff surrounding them. So like it says there, you know, you've got the Creek, which was kind of a combination of several different tribes that kind of collected together later on during during the wars that were going on. The Yamasi is really big for down here in this area. And the, the Guale, I'm going to pronounce it like that because Guale seems a little <laughs> risky. I don't know if that's a, that's it. And so here's a list of Native American tribal names that I found that were all local to the area. And a lot of these I recognize just from, you know, street names, different places. You got Catawba, the Shira, Cherokee, Chicory, or Chicora, Congaree, Cusabo, Natchez, Petey, Santee, Siwi, Wakama, Wasamasa, Watery, and the Amasi. So I'll just read this real quick, this top part, because this kind of goes into that story I was explaining earlier. So Guale history. The last settlement of the Aelion colony in 1526 was on or near Guale County, as the name Guadalpe suggests. When the French Huguenot colony was at Port Royal, South Carolina in 1562, the chief called out Wade and visited him several times from, or for provisions. After the Spaniards had driven the French from Florida, they continued north to Wale and Casabo territory to expel several Frenchmen who had taken refuge there. In 1569, missionary work was undertaken by the Jesuits simultaneously 
among the Cassabo and Wiley Indians. And one of the missionaries, Domingo August, uh, Augustine, wrote a grammar of the Wale, but the spiritual labors of the missionaries proved unavailing and they soon abandoned the county. In 1573, the missionary work was resumed by the Franciscans and was increasingly successful when in 1597, there was a general insurrection in which all of the missionaries, but one were killed. So, wow. A little bit longer. Oh, sorry, go ahead. That's I'm just, uh, you know, riffing on the the timeline history that's askewed from, you know, most of the POV when you go to standard public schooling, you know, you get the classic 1770 or 1492, mm-hmm. you know, and then the 1773 and or 72, whatever for the, the actual signing of the document to make America. Right. But you know, the more I study <laughs> the mysteries of history and European history, you know, at the same time in Europe, you know, there's massive amounts of like magical workings going on. You know, the Renaissance magic period is at its height, you know, things like necromancy and, and hydromancy and pyromancy. And then the, you know, the navigation and, and optics revolution is happening. And as science is booming and this new world's being discovered, and, you know, all these names, St. Augustine, St. Catherine's, Jekyll Island, the blending of those European saints and names, those those old theological names, and then mashing them with the native names. It's just interesting, you know, time and time again. And why, why would I be surprised when South Carolina, it's on the coast. I just, it's got to, I'm just getting such a, a sweet smell of such a, a secretive history going on here in South Rich Carolina. History, yes, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's get further along. We're we're just getting started here. It seems like the the natives were not happy about the Spanish and the French missionaries. No, no, and it's uh, you know for all that I've looked through, uh, while well, you know, like you've been saying, going through the mysteries of history, it's easy for me to just be like the Jesuits. You know what I'm saying? So I, you know, and I don't know how the interactions were actually initially established, but it's only too easy for me to assume that it was, you know, provocation mm-hmm. from the Spanish settling in their territory. Oh, yeah, we see. I mean, the colonial story is the same in most parts of the quote unquote new world. But as we have found <laughs> in this episode, I'm sure, and other episodes, the history is a lot older than it is new. So the fact that they're calling this a new world, it's like, well, who's it new for? The the interests of the elite, right? Uh, was this in uh, Charleston? Was it named after the King Charles? Is that Charlestown? Is that what we're supposed to, is that what we're told? I believe that is the official. I'd have to double check on that because, you know, it might be one of the people that officially, you know, came over with King's grants and established it, but... I would assume so. There was pretty much all of this area, as I've been looking into it, there was like, you know, maybe 50 people that got doled out major King's grants and were able to establish it and sell it and and break it apart from there. Interestingly enough, Trump's lawyer, man, what's his name? Cone? Lynn, Lynn Wood. He's trying to, he's, I know people that like work on the plantations that are still out here and like, you know, doing the landscaping and stuff like that groundskeeping and the guy Lynn Wood is trying to like reestablish this major original piece of King's Grant. He's like trying to put and buy up all the plantations and put them back together. So it's the original land. And I was like, that's insane. (laughs) It's an insane endeavor. Yeah. A little sidetrack there, but King, uh, King Charles. 
Yeah, I, I think so. See, I, I'm I'm really bad on my timeline for French or like English monarchy. <laughs> so, but I, you know, I would assume that's probably a safe a safe guess to say. I think it was England, like sixteen forty. Yeah, we'll double check that. I'll something like I'll that. I'll hit yeah. the wiki right now and see what the official story the is. Wiki. But but I got a lot more on Charleston at, at later on. But it's I didn't do a great job of setting up the original history for Charleston in, in particular here. <laughs> Oh, it's all good, man. You're doing, I, I love it. Like, yeah. yeah, let's continue. Cause usually you got to start. I mean, a really good way to establish the foundation is you got to start with the indigenous culture, right. you know, and to really go all the way back and then find our way into, to the town as we know it, man. Yeah, man. There's just so much more like interesting stuff that I learned. And, and like, it's why I would go to North Carolina as a kid on vacation and think like, Oh man, this is where the native Americans were not where I'm from. That's pirates, you know? So it's just this separation of, I don't know how I thought about it even back then, but you know, there's so much more of that civilization that was kind of along the Mississippi river that was, you know, working with the different people that were established on the coastline. And it was just this interconnected network. And, and I found some evidence here to kind of play into that. Uh, I just started digging through like old newspapers. Like I got on newspaper.com and just started digging and, and finding a lot of interesting stuff up. So I found, they, they actually found the burial site for those, some of the guale that were buried out on St. Catherine's Island. And you can see it here. Old remains give clues to 1500s culture, early Spanish, or early Spanish settlement in the Carolinas, Spanish mission found in Georgia. So they found the Spanish mission that I was referencing earlier with that, you know, retaliation from the Guale people, which I just thought it was interesting. As I was digging through this, it was fun to find so much about a Jesuit mission being a problem in this area. Oh, what's that in the ages old remains? What what was in that article? More So this curious. area down here, they actually found some artifacts and I'm trying to find the best area. So it says, quote, I don't know if we can push the date of this site back to 1566, but in some of our excavation, I am convinced that I'm seeing signs of the rebellion that occurred in 1597, says Dr. David Hurst Thomas curator of anthropology for the American Museum of Natural History and chief scientist of the St. Catherine's Excavation. The mission now being excavated was built in the early 1600s, but a layer of ash from building destroyed during an uprising among the island's Guale people now suggests that an even older Spanish church occupied the site before 1597. And so that's kind of like that article finding that made me dig in and realize, wow, they've actually been settling since the early 1500s, you know. Conquistadors, um, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> and I'm trying to think there, there might be some more. I mean, all of these, you know, articles I found interesting, but I was just trying to pick, you know, kind of the key areas that showed how much of what I was looking for I was actually able to find. Mm. Nice. Uh, really interesting. Yeah. So let's see. I'm trying to think if there was any other key points I wanted to hit out of there. Okay. So yeah, it's some of the artifacts show the mixture of Indian culture with the evangelical efforts of the Jesuits and the Franciscans who started the mission. Thomas said rosary beads were unearthed alongside Indian pottery and skeletons of Indians were found clasping Roman Catholic medallions indicating Christian burials. St. Catherine's Island on the McIntosh Liberty County line is privately owned and administered by the American Museum of Natural History. I did not. I didn't catch that. And the Georgia-based St. Catherine's Foundation. All right. Oof. Money. Yeah. Lots of money. <laughs> a lot of money. No, I mean, actually, I kind of go into it, but you know how, like, Jekyll Island was just kind of a hunting club for the, you know, the wealthy elite of America back in the 20s? 
the beast of Jekyll Island. Yeah, yeah, all that. So I, I found a, I was looking through that information and I found a lot more interesting stuff. But yeah, this is just, I didn't, so it was crazy for me to learn all about this and, and realize that this kind of Native American civilization was around like even Georgia and South Carolina. Because step pyramids? By, by yeah, this, yeah. you mean like mound building, right? Right, right. So maybe not as, as tall as the, the picture that was just depicting. I think that was more so in reference to the Mississippian culture. But likewise, you know, there were mound builders in Georgia and, and South Carolina. And uh, the Etowah Mounds in Cartersville, Georgia, it's not technically in the low country, but I thought it was close enough that it, it, it was the only excavation site that I could find a lot of information on. So I thought it was a good example. And this part of Georgia was technically part of South Carolina up until 1732. The state of Georgia didn't exist, and it was all considered South Carolina. And then they had the Carolina charters, right? That's what we're talking about here. But yeah, so this would have even been in technically the Carolinas back in the, the days that we're referencing here when these cities and towns were founded. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that great point because I hadn't even I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> That's right. That's what we're doing here, brother. This is like a, a workshop around your presentation, finding all the interesting hidden history in Charleston absolutely. and the greater area that is this. Uh, what did you call it? The basin. It's a the, the larger region that goes from like all the way down to Florida. What's it called? Oh, the Low Country. Low Country Basin, right? That's like an actual floodplain. I'm imagining, right? Like, I was wondering if it had to do with water, or yeah. like the the water table or something. Probably. It would make sense. Yeah, I think it is something to do in reference to the sea level. It's like the low, just lowest depression on the east coast in this region. Mm, um, right, and that all funny meets enough the the Appalachians as well. The bottom half of the Appalachians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is, it's like, it's a lot more mountainous up at like, you know, just south of Charlotte, you, you'll find some mountains and over towards Clemson, there's a little bit more mountainous and like Pickens and mm. uh, places like that. But yeah, it's, it's pretty flat for the most part. <laughs> right. On. I see, I see Chad's got the book out. What you got over there, Chad? You flipping through chapters? He's got the mountain encyclopedia, right? Nice. Oh, dude. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Anything you guys have to interject with, please do. Cause like, I don't want to feel like I, you know, I'm just giving off like, you know, no, some, no, no. Some boring don't lecture worry. or something. You're not, no, 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 you're fine. This is interesting. So we're, we're talking about the mounds, but yeah, it's amazing to see how connected <laughs> this whole culture was. They go as far East as what is now Cartersville, Georgia. And I'm sure there's some closer to the coast. I was learning today, thanks to Chad, with an article that he posted in our little telegram that they have these shell middens. And I knew about these. They have them up here in the Northeast and they're almost like mounds made out of piles of shells and they have them along the coast. So maybe those would have been sort of like a substitute for the earthen mounds on places where you know, used shells were more abundant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a little bit about those for the Jekyll Island and St. Catharines area. That That's what I was surprised to find out. I was like, I couldn't imagine that there might've been mound builders down even as far south as maybe even Florida, but certainly in the Carolinas, because there's evidence of that on Jekyll Island. There's whole islands that seem to be old shell middens. 
Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's like this this area, you know, if the river system had to carve itself out some somehow, so there were higher and lower points in this area to make those islands, you know, stay above sea level whenever it did rise. So that's interesting to consider. Maybe it was a little bit built up land in some of these cases. And also what's buried in the river systems here, you know, like what what can we not even find or what's been totally destroyed by nature? So. All right. Yeah, that's absolute facts. The celestial yeah. weather patterns, you know, mm-hmm. put us through big major changes. And next thing you know, boom, baby, got a deluge. <laughs> Turn the table up. <laughs> wow. So this would have um, been Cartersville, Georgia. What's the river that goes through Cartersville, Georgia there? I, I'm not sure, honestly. Find that I out. wish I could. But it's a beautiful in. image, though, to imagine that, I mean, wonder what that would have been built out of maybe earth or possibly stone but it seems pretty red yeah no i mean this was the artist depiction that they gave on on you know the information that i found for this specific mound site so i mean it, that's a pretty it's just a really you know looking back at the picture we were just looking at if you can imagine that that's potentially what they were building even back then and I like the fact they have what looks like a pyramid there to the left. I mean, obviously they're kind of all pyramidical, but that one specifically like comes to a pyramidian at the top. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of cool, but they found this artifact there and it connected me back to what I, I was finding information about the Yamasi. And that's going to kind of segue into the next little part that I have. I, I can't read that, but if anybody wants it, I have like that article downloaded so I can send it. And these are the, oh, yeah, the hit me up. these are the Itawa mounds and the Itawa river is what this uh, river is that we see in this image here. Oh, nice. Very cool. Right if we look at uh, this newspaper image you got right in the middle up top, that image there, I, I'm starting to recall these mound complexes now. They found a copper plate uh, they call it the Birdman, and I think they found it in the main pyramid when they did excavations. Oh, and shit. they found similar ones at Cahokia. And whenever they find these Birdman relics, they the archaeologists straight out come out and say that this was a Native American way to connect the upper worlds with the lower worlds, the bird and the man. And here in particular, they found the that relic in the center there that was made out of sheet copper. And I know the sheet copper supposedly came from the Lake Superior region up in Michigan from doing trading, but this complex along with Cahokia, these certain complexes, I think were, you know, I call them portals, but places that were connected to other realms, upper worlds and lower worlds. So that's pretty, pretty cool. I only know about three or four of these complexes that that was, what they were known for, so to speak. And obviously, so they were ceremonial complexes. Man, dude, uh, awesome. I want to go to all these mound sites across the across the uh, the country here with a Geiger counter and just record the Geiger measures at each one just to like, because, you know, we finna find these portals, man. We finna, finna, well, we finna, finna jump through some portals. There are some really interesting theories. I mean, the astronomical connections are some of the most obvious people always talk about, but I mean, we just had a guy on my podcast, Jeffrey Drum, who talked about how these mounds could have been some sort of chemical plant where they were actually performing alchemical rituals and alchemical processes with the mounds as a sort of device, harnessing energy. Maybe the river was utilized. These sites seem to be 
next to bodies of water as we see in this image here but yeah this is the beauty of this show is like we're we're sort of pinpointing charleston south carolina but then also casting this like web of things that are around it that you know back then like i said i mean this area would have even been technically in the carolinas so what even are borders and names for places other than clues as to what could be there i mean there i don't want to jump ahead too much but i i have found that charleston was planned using john locke's grand model for and for a utopian plan so it was one of the first planned out colonies and cities in the new world i don't know if you got to that kent but i did no i did not that's well, awesome man yeah. thank you both because that yeah that last one's mind-blowing <laughs> well let's let's keep treading through and then yeah we could obviously open it up to more inquiry at the end if we need to but what what do you got next for us this an well, awesome connection to the Birdman. yeah i was about to say going off of what you're saying there chad have, have you guys ever been to some mountain sites before no, technically, Tara and I went to one with Ross Ben in the Wissahickon, but it wouldn't be like a mound site that would be like in any book. I'd imagine it's just sort of something he's sussed out with his intuitive abilities and recognizes that it's a mound, but it's not like an officially registered site or anything like that. Yeah, we, we don't right. have any mounds up here in New England. They were all made of stone. So we've been to some stone sites, but that's about it. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. There's one in Connecticut. Yeah, I've, been to, I've been to Cahokia Mounds. Mm. I uh, oh, served awesome. Mound, Ohio, Newark, Earthworks. We've got some in Michigan here. So I've been to like five or six different sites. Cahokia so Mounds cool. in America's, yeah, Cahokia Mounds without a doubt in America is the most impressive as far as scale. I mean, it, it it's crazy. The Monk's Mound, the main pyramid, the same size as the Great Pyramid at Giza. <laughs> huge. Uh, Serpent Mound, Serpent Mound has the most incredible feelings. Like when you're at the Serpent Mound, that's the one spot. Not getting all goofy about it, but that's the one spot you can no, feel the goofy. energy. Yeah. You know, that's no, that's, that's you know, so you can feel that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going it's for, amazing. man. I, so, I got to go to the the Pinson Mounds in in Tennessee on my honeymoon, and we stopped through the. And both me and my wife were like, "This is the most noticeable energy shift we've ever experienced." It was yeah. immediately as soon as we got to the visitor center, even it was, and especially walking through the mounds. Was that recently? Yeah, it was October of last year, so we're rounding off our first year. Oh, congratulations! That's a really Thanks. cool way to spend your honeymoon, awesome. connecting it was with awesome. the Earth energy. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we rented a van and yeah. just kind of took a took it across. We were trying to push all the way over to Eureka, Arkansas, but we made it about as far as Arkansas. And then we just turned back and just you know hung out in Appalachia a little while. <laughs> right on, nice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so but that was exactly what I was I was getting at, man. I, if there's any place where I could imagine that connection being established, it's certainly that Ooh. that energy is so immediate and resonant. Well, um, I, I just heard Chad say that the Cahokia mounds are the same size as the Egyptian pyramids, and now we're seeing that these Guale people were possibly African Americans. I I've definitely we just brought up Ross Ben. He talks about that and how there were groups of people from Africa with lots of gold and lots of wealth that traveled over to North America and the Caribbean and settled way before the Spanish ever got that just, name here. That makes so much sense to me, man. Cause if you think about it, like it, if every other, like, you know, every other 
people on every other continent were really like navigating the seas at that point and already, you know, the Nordic people made it over <laughs> to Canada. So there's, it's just, it seems insane to think that nobody on the continent of Africa made it across right. the sea at any point before, you know, the when, slave trade when, was established. When the world was, you know, hijacked by the European takeover. Well, and even know, today, Africa is well. like shrunk on the map. Like it, people yeah. forget how immense Africa is. It, yeah, it's silly to think that nobody would have thought to sail a boat out across the Atlantic Ocean. They had boats. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was looking into oh, Cuba and all of those islands down there, you know, down south of uh, Florida. And, you know, there was huge, huge sugar industry that they that was basically implemented by Queen Elizabeth I and those 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 people. And they just had massive amounts of numbers of slaves that they brought over from Africa. But, you know, and this is complete speculation. I'm probably going off a little bit, but this did, you know, since you guys brought it up, that there was probably a lot more Africans over here than will ever be told in the mainstream narrative. And then when they came over, they just used them as slaves as opposed to bringing them over. Though I think that obviously did happen as well. Native Americans were taken as slaves in some cases as well so yeah it's definitely i mean yeah that fits right into a lot of the theories that we're just kind of bringing up and i've heard you know some groups like black israelites you could see them on certain corners in cities with their microphones that's a big theory that they profess that they're actually Mm. have been here way longer and i respect it you know if people want to get into a group like that but, but yeah, it is definitely a part of history that people get weird about. People sort of feel like it's maybe controversial when really, you know, who's it? who are we endemming here? We're talking about the elites, the people who could afford to take huge ship vessels that could fit all these people aboard across the ocean. And, you know, maybe they weren't bringing people from Africa. Maybe they took the people here and just let them slide into that whole narrative and and it was a convenient way for them to get other european people against another group of people and make this big lie that they're all savages i mean it's a sad tragic history and i mean us talking about it we can make connections what are we going to do to solve it i i hope we could raise the awareness but at the end of the day it's definitely like a sensitive subject and I, I respect why you know mm. oh absolutely yeah and it's it's hard to speculate you know as like a as a as a white person you know from that pov and so it's good to get you know everybody joined in the conversation right. uh you know as long as you're not just pointing at your fingers and being like you know but but it is incredibly interesting i mean especially when you have the concept of you know the potential places for atlantis you know if there was a land mass or other land bridges or, you know, some sort of Pangea effect, then, you know, there's just people all over the planet because people have always migrated and they want to get away from their asshole stepdad and they got to go, <laughs> well, you know, and there's ride, the ride whole, the wind. There's the whole story with the, the word Indian being, you know, a Spanish word meaning with God in Dios rather than like them thinking they were going to India and finding the spice trade or something. So, yeah, there's all sorts of weird like things that you realize have been forgotten or purposely written out of history and also made taboo to keep them a secret. 
Absolutely, man. Yeah, to that effect, I think it's all of the above. And I'm in no way trying to downplay the severity of the slave trade. I'm just, (laughs) you know, throwing an additional point of view. And honestly, like as I was doing this research, I found like several different communities of people that like are black and claim, you know, just straight and mostly Native American origins. And unfortunately, like at the time, it was hard for them to get any, you know, what little benefits the tribes were offered at the time. It was hard for these tribes to get offered any because they were just seen as like, you know, African slaves that were sold into the tribal system and and just had adapted. But it's a potentiality that they were actually there and had this heritage established some, obviously not all. But it's just like this is a, you know, this is one possibility of, right. I guess, African. Well, and it goes uh, to show how much, how complicated the the world was back then. And, you know, people try to simplify it all and say, oh, no, this one group of people was like this and this other group of people was like this. No, there was all sorts of mixing culturally going on way before anyone was forcibly taken across the ocean. So, yeah, it's it's definitely something we've talked about here on this show before when native americans come up i mean there's so many lies that have been told about their origins and what they actually had going on in their society yeah absolutely to perfect quote from the chief seku hajo yamasi tribal leader he said our history has been watered down but it was never watered down for us so I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. He's actually put out some, or people have put out YouTube videos of him giving some talks. And, and I'm assuming that they do in this picture over here to the right, they actually have some full on presentations where they, you know, set up and, and try to explain this, this aspect of history to the people that are interested. But there's a, a large a good con- potential guest. Maybe we'll get him on the show. Dude, I was thinking that I was like, I have no idea how to get in touch with him, but I mean, probably be a very cool guy to talk to. Right on. And this is just some pictures of Seminole Indians. Obviously, they were a confederation of several different tribes, but these people were just noticeably darker than the, you know, typical depiction of a Native American. Mm. And so I just think it's funny because obviously, you know, you've got Native Americans that were in North America, you've got Native Americans in Central America, and they don't look exactly alike. So it's just we, you know, seem to water down and simplify our, yeah. our, you know, image of a Native American. It's been homogenized so much. We, I've had guests on my show that have told me that there are certain tribes that had Welsh origin. I remember seeing on the History Channel a long time ago a group of people who claimed to be uh, Hebrew Native Americans and they had mm-hmm. Jewish mm-hmm. heritage and there's even evidence for that here in Connecticut where they found like Hebrew writing inscripted into a rock on some mountain well, the and the natives mounds, knew about right? it. The Bat Cave Creek or the Bat Creek Cave inscription. I have something on that if that's the case. Well, that is, I'm sure, connected to something. What I'm talking about <laughs> is in Washington, Connecticut, oh, okay. but uh, that's all right. Still interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, there's so many weird things that have been purposely written out and becomes less weird when you see more and more evidence for it. I mean, this, to me, you compiled a lot of evidence showing that, yeah. To be fair, I mean, there's a, there's a guy who's kind of along the lines of what you were talking about, the, the black Israelites. I don't know if he is a black Israelite, but he's got a YouTube video where he's, he's gathered a lot of information on this. So I watched his stuff and was just trying to like 
take in what information I thought, you know, he was putting, and this is, you know, I was using newspapers.com and just found some, some old newspaper articles kind of in, in line with this subject. I think I, I even sent you a link to Jelly Roll Morton talking about how jazz was influenced by Native American chant rhythms. Wow. Oh, sick. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, I, it's not a video. It's a, it's like a picture of Jelly Roll. And then he's like, you know, talking and explaining like the different rhythm patterns that they adopted to make that kind of typical uh, New Orleans swing oh, jazz. That, this is something um, we got to talk about on our music episode, brother. Oh How man, I, I'm getting some. <laughs> so another thing with the back to the Cuba, when I was looking into the, the Cuba mysteries and everything. I was like really interested in trying to get to the roots of like voodoo, hoodoo or vodun and that type of magic and like trying to, you know, see what the roots of black magic come from because there's black magic, right. Considered it in like Western esotericism. And then there's black magic done by, you know, people of the pigmentation. And, and so like, man, just, this is kind of all like rushing in this whole, you know, other side of the potentiality of where the true roots of voodoo come into play here on, on this continent. To me, that's that's really interesting because, you know, magic and we brought up alchemy earlier, like the the mounds being some sort of alchemical processes or, you know, having mineral content that might be able to help with some sort of transmutation or, or something, you know, and and then tying in the true roots of some African vodun, which is the, some magical practices over there and having that happen here and then having and I'm thinking about, you know, the Europeans that are stealing everybody's all of the mysticism from all over the world and hijacking it and sucking it up. And then I'm like, Oh, then you come over here and you take this beautiful creation that has happened and then just rip it all away. Anyways, please continue. I am done ranting on that, but thank you for bringing all this up. You're, you're great. No, absolutely, man. I appreciate the, I appreciate your saying. And uh, the- yeah, this, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Were the the black Native Americans? Did they were they they were at the the Etowa mounds, mm-hmm. right? I, I possibly I'm not sure if that that would probably be more in like tra- traditionally what's considered Creek territory, which is just that amalgamation of different smaller tribes, um, okay. and they kind of lump them all together as Creek. But the Guale and the Yamasi do typically get you know kind of lumped into that, and the Tamakwan I think is another Indian tribe that might be. Uh, you know, in that region. So I'm not sure. I, I think if I go back, they might've actually said what tribe they thought, but uh, you know, yeah, actually you're right because the artifact that they found out of the Egypt wall bounds was a Guale artifact. So. Okay. Cause I was just, I read somewhere recently that the like black people and white people <laughs> represented the upper and lower world. So it was, it was like just thinking if the, those mounds or that that mound there, the Etowa mound was where they would do that, unite the upper and lower worlds. And, you know, the blacks were there, then maybe there, I don't know, something going on there. Some significance. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, for sure. No, that's definitely a very significant site. I, 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 there's so much more, like, I, I could probably learn from that. But, yeah, I mean, it's definitely... 
definitely a good reservoir of, of good information to start digging into. Yeah, this is the, the last thing I had on this subject, though, guys. This is something that the YouTuber that I was talking about earlier, I can't remember his YouTube handle, and I should credit him, but he he pulled up this Industrial Commission on Agriculture and Agricultural Labor from 1901 official U.S. documentation. And they were actually talking about, so this is the quote, the most peculiar thing in the quartophages in this book on the human race asserts that the fact that in fact the African lived on the islands long before the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. He is high authority and he says the Yamasi Indians were Negroes, what were known afterwards as the fiercest of the Indian tribes of the South. The well-known Yamasi Indians were Africans. So I just was like, all right, I mean, that's interesting. At least throw in there yeah. that you've got a you know, official U.S. documentation referencing that. So just another, you know. Right. And so this is, you know, where I considered if you're if we're talking about the different people that were coming and going from North America before we open up the history books and it says people are allowed to come to the new continent, then it's really interesting to me to consider the possibility of Native Americans like adopting Freemasonry a lot earlier than we might even imagine. I was looking into Henry St. Clair's voyage to Nova Scotia in 1398. And there's a video I found where they were interviewing from the Mi'kmaq tribe and they, he was backing up and saying that, yes, they do have like, you know, at least spoken historical context for Henry St. Clair coming to the Americas. And then I don't know, you know, if either of these things, this was like history channel kind of special that I found, but it shows the Templar battle flag and then the Mi'kmaq ceremonial flag, which are essentially the exact same thing, just with a star and moon flipped. Right. And then... This, uh, this rock over here has an inscription of what looks to be a Native American feather design next to a Templar cross. So, you know, tough to say if those are totally legit, but that's what this, you know, video that I was watching presented. And there's also a book written called Native American Freemasonry. I haven't read that, but it seems like a really interesting read because it talks about the, you know, the uh, information inside the book is about, you know, the early establishment of Freemasonry. Yeah. I, I there's some, there's a, a, a cool, th it's not even, a, it's not a theory, but uh, this, this thread that I found through Michelle Gibson, I think, I think everyone here is familiar with Michelle and she had some really great videos on the history of Moorish masonry and how Freemasonry itself was jacked from the original Moorish masonry, which had a lot more degrees and was, you know, black dominated. And that was the original masonry in, in that paradigm of understanding. And, you know, it's kind of, I haven't dug too much deeper in on that. And it's kind of hard to find like a, a, like the best material on it, but it's so interesting. And it just is another thread at like yet again, some Eastern mysticism taken away by the Western culture, you know, just, I don't know. I don't know, but I have to dig deeper into it. This is really also fascinating yet again. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. I've seen I've seen stuff about this and there was a a Freemasonic group called the Order of the Red Men, but as far as I know it wasn't comprised of any Native Americans, which seems kind of like insulting okay. to a certain degree for a bunch of like colonists to go and create an order where they're like, Yes, now I'm the Sachem, but Well that's a syncretism, right? Now, yeah, it is kind of like a syncretism and like controlling the history of certain things, but Chad, what are your thoughts? Now, the, well, I'm looking at this book here, Native American Freemasonry, and uh, 
Northeastern Native American tribes do have their own sect of Freemasonry. Mm. It's called Ooh. the Grand Midowin Society. Wow. And it is, for all essential purposes, it's the Native American Freemasonry. They have all the different, you know, levels and everything. And it, it's super interesting. If anyone wants to look into it, yeah. it's called the Grand Midowin Society. Yeah, we got to get a, a... It's really interesting. I a link on that. You got to send me a link and we'll put it in the episode description. So, all right, right on. Did you find that That's Henry awesome. Sinclair made his way all the way down to South Carolina, or is this just about colonialism in general, this slide? This was essentially just kind of backing up more, more evidence of, you know, a transcontinental voyages between right. all well, I have a friend races. In, and I have a friend in Norway who's told me about this, how the, the Norwegian travelers would travel up to Nova Scotia and different parts of Canada and trade with the Native Americans there. But yeah, this is definitely something that I hope we touch on in a future episode. Maybe we have a listener out there in Nova Scotia or Maine and they can go and dig into it. But what's the Bat Creek Stone? We just changed slides here. This is what my reference to the the rock in, in Washington, Connecticut reminded you of, correct? Yeah, so this is a good a good segue because it's it's in North Carolina, so it's a little bit closer to the where we're we're referencing. But this was found at Bat Creek Mound in 1889. And if you look at the inscription, it looks almost identical to what they were saying was Hebraic language. And the inscription there, I think it says holiness to the Lord. But yeah, so this was just yet another incident of a possible connection with Freemasonry. And if the Templars had established some some sort of order, you know, earlier than we're even able to consider, because that was, you know, in the yeah, 1398. So that's significantly longer than, than we kind of consider being over here. Interestingly enough, that uh, what you're kind of talking about a second ago, Mark, they featured that in the new Assassin's Creed that takes place. It's all about Vikings. And mm. actually, I found a video where these, these people contacted a Native American language society, I guess, organization, and they they translated the entire part of that video game. And it's really cool to see like what they're putting in there. Yeah, uh, I, I want to do, maybe we'll have you back on My Family Thinks I'm Crazy to dive into this because we've. I think we even talked about it the first time we podcast because that video game was a big part of like opening my eyes to secret societies and all this stuff at a young age i was just playing it and there was all these side quests that basically taught you about esoteric history and i was like whoa when i was reading it back in books and stuff i'm like oh that's what i was playing in assassin's creed it all makes sense now so i'm not surprised to hear they've gone and expanded on their esoteric cabinet i just haven't played video games in a long time but that's cool yeah I, I i dropped out of them as well this one i actually just found while i was looking up stuff for this topic and and i kind of spilled over into just looking about the possibility of the scandinavians and norwegians and well, let's go back to that last slide before we jump oh, yeah. to the the mound because i want to or the one before this so we have this place in the back creek the back creek stone in north carolina so have you deciphered, has anyone deciphered what this stone's supposed to say or what it's referencing? It says it has some sort of Masonic impression possibly. Yeah, I can, so I'll just read this little excerpt they've got here. It said the stone was forgotten for, oh, sorry, 
yeah, the stone was forgotten for around 70 years until ethnologist uh, named Joseph Mahan uh, was confused by the fact that the letters didn't look like Cherokee. He sent a photo to his friend Cyrus Gordon, who realized that and flipped it upside down, and the characters looked exactly like Paleo-Hebrew letters. This caused a stir within the scientific community. If true, the word to the left of the comma-shaped word divider meant for Judea, in 1988, a professor, J. Houston McCullough, reinforced the idea of the tablet showing Hebrew. In 1991, Mary Quas wow. and Robert Mainfort found out that it was likely Emirate had carved the marks into the stone as a means of job security if he found an artificial, if he found an ar artifact in one of the mounds, that meant he would get more funding to explore more mounds. So this is just more discrediting. And to me, anybody, you know, it, that sounds more like a uh, instance of somebody being discredited because they're hitting on something a little bit maybe too dangerous to consider for the official narrative. Well, and it, but uh, it fits into what we were saying earlier, you know, we'd imagine that if people from the African continent were traveling here, maybe people from the Mediterranean culture were as well. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, thanks for, I don't know if we repeated ourselves. I don't know if I like blanked out for a second, but I just felt like I didn't want to pass this slide up too quickly. It was so interesting. So we have the islands all along the coast here that are controlled by elites. That makes a lot of sense. We see that near where we live. There's some nice ritzy towns and they have all these islands and people have like their whole house built on the island. They own like a driveway on the shore and they take a boat to and fro whenever they want to come to the mainland. Yeah. There's certainly a, a long standing history of, of European money <laughs> running up and down the coastline. Mm. Yeah. So I, I just didn't, honestly, I've been to several of these islands, you know, Tybee is just off of Savannah and to St. Simon's Edisto, John's Island, Isle of Palms, Murphy Island, St. Helena is actually connected to the Island. I live on the Fusky. I actually, get to play uh, music on every, every fairly often throughout the summer. I'm actually playing there this Sunday. So, right. yeah. So it's just, but I didn't realize how many more there were just in the ones that I am aware of and kind of frequent. And this also gives a good idea of where we're talking about whenever we're talking about the low country, it's pretty much this area all along the coastline right. and, you know, consistent of all these little well, edge it's, islands. It's interesting to note on the point of music, apparently beach music was born in South Carolina. Did you know that? Oh yeah, dude. That my, my mom played it nonstop. She like, uh, she followed chairman of the board for a summer. And like, that's all I grew up on was beach and, and soul and stuff like that. Right on. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, that uh, let's, uh, I guess I'll go move on to the next one. So I think we're probably all kind of aware of the you know, like connection with the Rockefellers and Jekyll Island and, uh, you know, the creation of the Federal Reserve and all that. G. Edward oh, okay. Griffin's book, The Creature from mm -hmm. Jekyll Island. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Chad, did you actually, the, the, the shell bins that you were talking about earlier, did you find the one that they had found up on Jekyll Island? No, I didn't actually. No. I saw one on Hilton Head, but I did not see Jekyll Island. Yeah, so this one, the Rockefeller Cottage, is also called Indian Mound Cottage. <laughs> and it, it, so it says, is a house on Jekyll Island, Georgia. It is next to the Jekyll Island Club. It stands three stories high, and there's a total of 25 rooms. There, You know, yada, yada. Sorry, but so, yeah, so they named it. Okay, yeah, Gordon McKay of Massachusetts built Indian Mound and named it so for the mound on the lawn then thought to have been a burial site of the Gwale Indians, but later found to be a shell midden. 
William Rockefeller purchased it in 1905, and it remained in the Rockefeller family until 1947. So they named the golf course on Jekyll Island, Indian Mound course, and they named the, uh, the cottage, the Rockefeller cottage, where apparently the signing of uh, whatever agreement they came to took place. Well, that might've been in the hotel, but there's certainly some significance to this mound. I think Esoteric Eddie touched on it in, in his episode with you, Mark, whenever he was talking about Jekyll Island, there is like some speculation. There was like a man, some like dark tribal, like ritual site oh. in the basement of this place and i tried looking for that like so hard because it was fascinating and but I, I, it's all backed up by like the guy that was taking care of the place at the time so i want to look more into that because it was really fascinating but i didn't find too much information on it outside of the original guy that was reporting on you know him being discovering that mm. wow yeah there's one of my favorite stories on jekyll island is the it was like a major thing ritual that would happen and it's like but the story was told it was years ago and it got pretty popular and it was like this incredibly like hardcore christian guy that was going there on from a message from god to to cleanse the the cleanse the the market energy and he claims that he actually created i think the 2008 market crash by going to Jekyll Island and you know him and God kicked this stone together at the same time and that was a stone that was part of the rituals back in the the early days when there would be like Nephilim style indigenous people with with like the Rockefellers <laughs> he told this story and it's it's really great yeah I think you guys could probably find it on YouTube but yeah and then he claims to create the 2008 market crash which is which is hilarious and uh, yeah jackal island man it, it goes it goes deep they had some tiffany stained windows out there and if i love the tiffany stained glass connections man he's just that guy's everywhere as well yeah. dude i was just listening to y'all's episode on florida with with one and you guys got into that i didn't find that in my research i didn't know about that i saw that church the i think you guys were talking about were you on that episode the florida episode for with one yeah, I sparked out. Yeah, baby. Yeah. So that was fascinating. I just heard that the other day. I was like, damn, that's cool. So yeah, I mean, what I think is essentially taking place with this, even if regardless of the validity of the ritual site under the, the, the Rockefeller, we have enough examples here of them building, you know, just like golf courses around these Indian mountains. And it even seems like, you know, golf was invented by the Freemasons who would have been aware of these sites and even maybe are trying to harken back to the mounds on the British Isles and all the stone structures there. But yeah, this is interesting. I want, I've always thought about golf and like wondered what the esoteric the ball significance <laughs> is and why they build them in places that seem like Tara and I were hiking one time right near a golf course and we found this strange stone with like a painted symbol on it and i mean it, it was just regular black paint it could have been some kid that put it there but it also who knows could have been an ancient stone that's been there for a long long time it was like very simple design but meaningful it was impactful i have a picture of it it's 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 in one of the podcasts artworks but yeah this is fascinating I, i've always wondered what they're hiding at these golf courses i worked at a golf course once i mean my speaking theory of, is well, oh, sorry go ahead go ahead chad i say speaking of masons mark speaking of masons and golf courses the mountain builders country club on the slide in newark ohio 
Oh God! It's located off Thirty Third Street. Woo! Oh, one two. I've actually five. been to that course. It's per- you played there. Yeah. I didn't play there, but when I was in Newark, Ohio, seeing all the different mound sites, the, one of the main mound sites is part of the golf course. So yeah. you can't either. You have to play the golf course to see it all, or they have an observation tower. So I had to walk up this observation tower and watch all these guys golfing just so I could take pictures of the ancient mounds. <laughs> you know? Crazy. But I never knew it was on, I didn't know it was on 33rd street. I was clueless to that. And and then I see that they got the, they, a foot found on the golf course. Someone found a foot. Oh, wait, where is it? Yeah. Indigenous <laughs> remains found at proposed golf course oh, yeah. site. Yep, Lake Michigan shoreline, indigenous remains found, controversial project adjacent to Kohler Andrea State. <laughs> oh, I, my, my brain literally put the found and at together to be like Indian remains a foot found. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. Jeez. Anyways, please continue. Possibly. That's probably at least a part of it. But yeah, man, I mean, I it's think great. what's happening, like why they, why would the Rockefellers build their, their cottage on a mound? I mean, it could be innocuous, but I think it's more significant because the fact they're putting so, I mean, the fact that this is happening so often, it's like, this seems more like, Oh, a good opportunity to kind of take control of an area that is resonating with a specific, I, I kind of think of these mounds as pressure points. Like if the yeah. energy system that's happening in the ley lines of North America are like veins, then it's like, these are, I mean, essentially constructed pressure points to concentrate that energy and be able to, to take a hold of it and I don't know, manipulate it or use it in better ways. But, you know, it might've been more ceremonial and, and kind of a positive thing back when, but now it seems to be an opportunity for some dark occultists to kind of project very dark vibes into the energy field, if you will. Well, you know, touch on the, on the aspect of portals we're talking about earlier, you know, it's, there's, you know, the really fun sci-fi type of portal where you literally transport your entire body dematerializes and, you know, ends up somewhere else, or it's this, the sacred feeling of uh, vibrating at such a state, you're having such a spiritual experience that, you know, your, your consciousness is going through that portal. And, you know, if you're around heavy electromagnetic energy, I mean, we have loads stone in our brain we have magnetite clusters in our brain which is fascinated scientists for years and you know humans and magnets like there's a really sweet book i'm going through right now by pb randolph paschal beverly randolph who was a clairvoyance and had beef with hp blavatsky back in the back in the 19th century but he was a clairvoyant and he wrote this book called seership and the magnetic mirror and his experiments and they're all about, you know, expanding your consciousness with magnets, you know, putting magnets up to your brain and, and having, having clairvoyant experiences. And it's, it, I mean, you know, the earth is the lodestone itself, you know, it is full of all of these. And I was wondering about golf, you know, cause it is kind of, kind of funny to think about an esoteric history of golf. But the first kind of thing I went to was like, what about dowsing? You know, it's like, it's like the aspect of dowsing to find these sacred sites and, you know, you're spinning your club, you hit the ball, it goes right in the hole. What if underneath the holes, are like something you know i don't know like oh, what space jam right space jam does that <laughs> space jam, dude. hey 
<laughs> no, absolutely, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, and think about who's primarily spending their time out on these courses. You know, it's primarily like the people upper class kind of walking around and they're taking like, just like you were saying, Chad, like you had to go look at it from a tower and these guys were sitting there whacking balls around and like crushing beers and just talking, talking shit. But yeah, I just thought that was fascinating because once I found Jekyll Island had Indian Mountains Golf Cottage, I was like, oh, okay, how often is this a thing? Because I'd heard other people speculate on, on the same concept before, like the energy points and them kind of seizing control of it. So I don't know. I, I just wanted to include that. Cause I was like, that definitely seems to be a play here on Jekyll Island. Wow. Here's just some more information I found on the Rockefellers. Actually, one of the Rockefellers got involved and I found the article where he was involved in a dicey, like potential murder uh, and another one for embezzlement. And so I found another thing in this book that I'm going to start talking about in a couple of slides where it said like wealthy elite families would send pretty much their like black sheep family members, like their screw up sons or daughters out and they would just kind of hang out at their, you know, elegant houses that they had built down here in the low country, or they would use them for weddings, summer homes and stuff like that. So, but they were definitely, you know, seemingly taking a hold of this opportunity to kind of like isolate themselves within this environment. Do you think there is that to, to sit in like a vortex of energy or something? Yeah, I think so. I think they're harnessing the, cause like we were talking about earlier, like how positive, and like just uh, not even necessarily positive, but just noticeably different and more powerful and significant like the energy is whenever you're walking around at these mound sites. So it seems to me that they either are trying to just use that for their own benefit or they're possibly trying to work some dark occult magic and, and kind of cast negativity out into just the general energy sphere. Okay. Used um, to use it for benevolent purposes and to connect, connect their bodies to the the energy grids that are around the planet. You're saying Native Americans? Yeah, yeah, she's suggesting that they use the ley lines and the mounds to connect with the earth energy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm full on with that, with that idea. I've heard some other people kind of explain it better than I could, but yeah, I mean, that just, it, it resonates. That makes a ton of sense to me. So it, this is just another little interesting thing I found. So Cumberland Island was actually owned predominantly by the Carnegie family and they had maybe a house on Jekyll Island as well, but they owned a significant amount of Cumberland Island. And JFK Jr. actually got married out on Cumberland Island in 1996 and died 33 months and 25 days later. So I don't know if that means anything, but I thought the 33 months was a little bit interesting considering, you know, the history of his family getting killed. And that was the same island that we were talking about earlier. The St. Catharines and Cumberland both had different Jesuit missionaries established back in the day as well. So, And this is the Dungeness Mansion that was out on Cumberland Island whenever the Carnegies were living out there. It's this massive, like, palatial estate. And it's hard to even, con like, conceptualize how they built this whenever you realize how remote the islands were at that time. And, it, I mean, I know that they had a little bit better understanding of the river systems, but it's just like the to imagine all the materials that they had to get out here, not to mention like the workload and everything. And let's see, when did it say it was built? I don't have the date, but it burned down in 1959 due to a specific or a suspicious fire that tore through the mansion, leaving it in ruins, which is the way it appears today. 
So these are pretty cool. If you like looking at old ruins, these are <laughs> pretty cool. I want to make it out here one day if I can. Wow. Oh, here we go, bud. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, dude. I was about to say, whenever you mentioned it earlier, I was like, oh, I got a lot of voodoo in this presentation. Yes. So I knew it. Oh, beautiful. There's a, dude, there's a ton of voodoo history here. And like up until I started digging into this research, like I knew of what they call them root doctors down here. I don't know. Have you all ever heard of that? Yeah, the roots of the mandrake root. Yeah. Yeah. The mandrake root. So it, it was like a thing and, and people would kind of joke like, Oh, I'm going to throw, I'm going to put a root on you. But like, I'm not at all for, you know, like my upbringing, I wasn't around it at all. It was just kind of like talked about loosely because it was something that was in the area. But I mean, yeah, all of the, all of these articles were pretty fascinating because it, it just, it, you can see how many different things there were written about it at the time because Buford specifically was such a hotspot and St. Helena actually has a United Nations marker because they're concentrating the pin instance. Institute, I believe it was one of the first established schools for African-Americans early, early on after the abolition of slavery. So there's some, there's some really cool history out, especially over a little bit further to the East than I am even now, which would just be St. Helen Island and DeFuss. I don't think I have anything specific from that page, but yeah, just a bunch of art. Oh. Sorry, a bunch of articles that I found. And so there, we actually in uh, Beaufort County have the, the oldest authentic African village in North America. It's called Oyatunji. It's still operating. There's not as, as many people out there now, but it's, uh, you guys cool if I just read off like this little excerpt I got about it? It pretty oh, yeah. much summarizes it. So, Adafunmi was born in Detroit, Michigan under the name Walter King. Throughout King's life, he went through his own spiritual journey before founding the current order of the Yoruba, uh, of Yoruba in North America. Adafumni was stu uh, first studied Haitian voodoo at the age of 20 and later became the first documented African-American to be ordained into the Yoruban priesthood. In Harlem, New York, Adafumni set up his first Yoruba temple, but later moved to its current location in Beaufort, South Carolina. Early in King's journey, he ventured to Nigeria to search for spiritual guidance in his temple or for his temple in North America, but was outright rejected by the Yoruba people. After the success of his order, the revival of the Yoruban beliefs in the United States and the conflicts arising in the Cuban sect of the religion, Adafumni traveled to Nigeria a second time. King was then welcomed with open arms and coronated as the Yoruban king of all of North America. Thus, the Yoruban kingdom was born. When leaving the United States and entering the Yoruban kingdom, visitors must wait at the gate before given permission to tour the village. Resident devotee Afun Sagon has been living in the village for at least two years. He was first visited, or he first visited Oyatunji just to do a simple flooring job in one of the buildings, but ended up finding his spiritual calling in the Yoruban culture. Today, he makes up one of the five to seven families that call Oyatunji home. And it just talks about the large plantation building because this actually where they moved the site, it was at a different location initially, but then they moved the site to what used to be a plantation. So it's kind of nice inversion of what it used to symbolize, you know, here's some pictures of it. And uh, I've only ever seen the sign. I, I've driven past that sign plenty of times. Like I've never actually been in into the community, but I've always been, uh, you know, thought it was kind of fascinating that it was there. Yeah. yeah. You guys ever heard of uh, the Zangbeto? No. Uh -uh. That's that little guy down there at the bottom with the sunglasses on the hat and it's just straw. So this is a, a Like a thing. scarecrow? Yeah, well, it's a thing in voodoo culture where they wear like that, but it's a suit. And there's like, 
they dance around in it and it's really if you guys get the chance check out Zingbeto dances and I didn't know this but apparently that's a secret society as well so you have to enter a mystic secret society even to learn the art of Zingbeto just to learn how to work the suit and do the the dances wow that's amazing uh, yeah and so where is this located ge- geographically right here this village is in Beaufort County, South Carolina. It's it's between where I'm at right now in Beaufort and Yemassee. So it's, I think, Highway 21 off of Highway 21 or 17. I'm really bad with the highways around here. That's cool, man. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I thought I, I, it was a good chance for me to learn more about it since I've been around it for so long. And I want to go check it out now that I know a little bit more about it. It's pretty fascinating. These are just more articles that I found, but this introduces the guy that we're about to start talking about pretty heavily. Let's see. Where'd the culture originate from? The Yoruban culture? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yoruba, I believe. And and there's probably different stuff thrown in there. I know that it's like almost impossible to like hammer down a specific set of Yoruban gods because there's just, I think they're called Orishus or something, Orishas. And there's so many, the pantheon of like Yoruban gods is just so vast. It's hard to like even. I'm vaguely familiar with some of them. Yeah, I read a book recently this spring about voodoo in Brazil. And they talk a lot about you know, how there's many different deities that they can call on. I mean, it's a very large number, but yeah. Wow. This is going on in the low country. So here we got this guy who, yeah, this was one of the, like, I I put this in the Patreon chat, man. This was some of the most fascinating stuff that I found out about. So I found out the sheriff of the county that I'm living in was a voodoo practitioner and they, they called him the white witch doctor. And he actually wrote a book called high sheriff of the low country. If you guys see over here there, I actually found the plaque on his old office building. And it says, contributing to the building boom after the Great Fire of 1907, the Levin Building housed the Levin Law Offices and that of Sheriff J. Ed McTeer, who in 1924 through 1963 used voodoo in keeping the law in Beaufort County. So, yeah, I mean, he was literally a guy that came from a really interesting family, had a lot of connections to mysticism and esotericism. I've got a book. I actually read a couple of books about him. This is Coffin Point by Baynard Woods. And so I've got some quotes out of here, but I'll start with this one. This impressed Ed, the voodoo talk and the power that came with it. It added a different dimension to the spooky atmosphere of European spiritualism at his home. His grandmother participated in table tapping seances and delved deeply into the occult. She Mm. claimed to have ESP. McTeer believed his mother inherited her power. Mm hmm. So essentially this guy, he realized that there was such a stronghold of voodoo practitioners over in the African communities off on St. Helena. And he was like either ingratiated into that because of the esotericism that he was growing up with, with his grandma, who is actually, we're going to get a little bit deeper into this, but his grandma was a member of the Hayward family and Thomas Hayward Jr. was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and the, one of the original King's Grants families. So this guy is related to one of the original King's Grants families in the Hayward. It's his mother's side, but I thought that was really interesting. And I mean, if you guys are interested, man, there's so much on this dude. Like he was definitely into the limelight. There's just, I have tons of articles and stuff like this. These two books go over a lot of good information. So, I mean, there's, he was definitely like a a kind of folkloric character around here. Like he was larger than life and he knew how to present himself in that way. And that's, I think, why he held 
his office as sheriff for so long because he was just, I mean, nobody else is going to have this backstory. He's a voters like gunless Buford sheriff. He conducts few hunts. Crooks just surrender. A seem sheriff seem or being sheriff seems a cinch for Ed McTeer. And this is my favorite quote from his book, High Sheriff, High Sheriff of the Low Country. And it says, the root doctor deals mainly in auto-suggestion and an individual subconscious mind. The best definition I have come up with, sorry, the best definition I have come up with is that voodoo, witch, and root doctors are all one and the same. People claim to have the power to call in the spirits of darkness and have them do their bidding. They are the poor man's psychiatrist, people who deal not in fact, but in fallacy and mystic powers. So I thought it was interesting that he was kind of taking this psychological view of it and almost using it to his advantage in and keeping, you know, keeping up with his duties as sheriff. A really fascinating character. Are you guys see anything on this that kind of stands out or? I don't. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. Uh, this is like the witch hunter type stuff. Like in New England, they have this guy who was remembered as John Winthrop the Younger, and he was kind of like an alchemist who helped stop some of the panic and mania that was going on with the witch hunts. But, yeah, this is cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, this was, I think, my favorite kind of topic that I got into just because there's so much so much there to, like, research. And then also I've got some cool synchronicities that started lining up with, with, with this, you know, research. But I found out... Uh, he was also a Freemason. Um, nice. And in the book, he started a, as a child, Egg McTeer started his own secret society named the Indian Gang. So I thought that was kind of interesting. He is like starting a secret society about Indians. Maybe he was a little bit more up to snuff because uh, of his family's position on the local history. Also, his father was a sheriff before him, but he was only sheriff for about six months or so. He was, there's a, there's a, a good bit of, they, they delve into this at the time, but I'm going to just read this real quick. This is from the book. Ed McTeer claimed he inherited a supercharged sheriff's blood from his father and ESP from his mother. Jim Eddie McTeer, his father, was born a once or was born to a once powerful family diminished by reconstruction days. So the other side of his family, they lost a lot of money in what seems to be like investing in the railroad from the research that I did. It's like they were also pretty predominant because of their investments with the railroad, but it was all through the Confederacy. So like they lost a ton of money and totally fell out, but they still had land. So Jim Eddy moved from Early Branch to Red Dam, South Carolina, where he started a business supplying cordwood and ties to the railroad. He met a young woman named Florence Hayward, a descendant of Thomas Hayward and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And her family was big time. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's that's funny because... You were talking about that Florida episode that Juan gave and Thomas and I did like a couple months back now. And I was doing a deep dive on the character Henry Flagler, who was John D. Rockefeller's business partner in the Standard Oil Company. And after he moved from New York and Ohio down to Florida to basically establish Florida through his railway system this was at the same time period as this right like as this guy because it just showed 1911 not sure what this exact oh he was born in 1903 
Yeah, but this would have been the person we're talking about is his his father, and then his father's father, who was like as far back as I could find, was on his side of the family because the Haywards go back, you know, however long. But on the McTeer side of the family, I went and like dug through the lineage because I was trying to figure out what you know if they were some offshoot of a more influential family that might have been mm-hmm. connected with that. But yeah, no, I think I think the time frame that you're referencing would line up with potentially the earlier McTeers being involved with the railroads. And the, and the point I'm getting at. Too is, you know, because we were talking about voodoo as well, right? And we're also talking about this is in the thick of American spiritualism, which is seances, mirrors, clairvoyant. The occult is rising huge. And I was going to Google, I hadn't yet, but maybe you will now. How many Freemasons were peaking? Like, what was the membership levels right now at, at the early 1900s before the Great Depression? Because it's been slowly going. I mean, it's been dumping for quite some time. And I'm sure that the wars had a lot to do with that. And after the wars that the Freemasons itself kind of started to dwindle away. But before that, it's seemingly like there was a lot of people interested in the masonry, signing up, getting on board. And Henry Flagler's wife, Ida Alice Shroud, was known for being obsessed with the occult and having seances. And that's why Henry Flagler built all these lavish hotels down in Florida that had psychomantiums in them and, and halls of mirrors. And then you, you know, you hear this tie, someone who is a Mason, he's got a family ties, you know, he's got family money and they come from the railway situation. That's right on your way down to Florida. There's undoubtedly, you know, if you have a railway company and you're dealing with Henry Flagler, one of the richest men in the world at this time, the paths have crossed. And you just, the picture I'm trying to paint is this time period in the early 20th century of of America was so much magic going on, at least people trying to do magic. Conceptually, it was almost mainstream to practice magic. You had voodoo going everywhere, right? And even if it was taboo, the voodoo, then you had the, oh, it's okay, we have the bourgeoisie spiritualism. You know, we can can do spiritual seances and he's going to come over with his... Race a ghost, you know, and it's just fascinating. And sorry to keep ranting, but this is tight. It, it's it's really cool to see these things interlink with other things I've looked up and not too recent, not too far past here, man. This is awesome. Yet again, thank you for the third time now. Oh, no. Continuous. Dude, thank you all so much. Cause I mean, honestly, you're just helping me like paint, paint the picture in my head as well. Cause like, I didn't know anything about the Flagler guy. So, I mean, that helps me establish the possibility of there being a little bit more money in the railroad system, you know, getting set up. And also like, what was the the reasoning for their path that they chose to cut the railroads? You know, were they possibly destroying some stuff uh, while they were creating, you know, destruction and creation at the same time? (laughs) Um, And Mary Todd Lincoln was also super into uh, the spiritualism movement. And I've heard like I, the idea is that like, there was a lot of people. It's always the wives. I, well, that's what I'm saying. It seems to be the trend because it's like, they knew that they had friends that had lost sons in the civil war. And it was like almost a money-making operation in some instances. I mean, I'm, I'm totally open to the idea that some were a little bit more legitimate than others, but certainly, I mean, some people were just, you know, conning people and, and trying to play into this being so popular at the time. Ah, I see sleight of hand. 
yeah, yeah. it was it was all about optics and illusions smoke and mirrors the term itself comes from that era like create like there was you know you had the the smoke going on your machine you had a light projected off of a mirror and someone's reflection was put into that and they were acting as a ghost that's just that's theater you know in a sense and i mean we talk about egregores you know if you're egregorically creating all these ghosts at this time and tapping into this spiritual realm ah it's so it's so strange i i digress though and please continue with the presentation oh yeah no worries man i mean yeah it's like how, I mean, even if it is a little bit of smoke and mirrors, it's like what there is an argument to be made that it is still magical to give somebody such a an emotional response to something that you're creating at a whole cloth. You know what I'm saying? It's like, there you go. And if there is, you know, no actual ghost being conjured, it's like you're still giving somebody the experience that there is. And so it's like there's something to that as well. I really like the psychological side, even if it is, you know, a little less fun for some people. But I'm like, there's still <laughs> some some good stuff there. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. This is, uh, I think, one of the last things I got on Shared Mac here, but this is just a really interesting instance of voodoo down here. So this is last quote from that book I'm going to read, but Sheriff McTeer, this is a quote from the author and his investigation into this topic down here. And he's talking to Dr. B, who was the grandson of the famous Dr. Buzzard of voodoo lore. And there were several, but the specific Dr. Buzzard that we're talking about is named, a man named Stephanie Robinson. And so Dr. B, Sheriff McTeer said he defeated my grandfather. He talked about a lot of things he didn't know anything about. When, he get, when that body got beheaded, they came around. They talked to everybody asking what it was about. Nobody said nothing except for Mr. McTeer. He died the next day, the very next day. He talked about things you don't talk about. Don't worry. You can't reveal anything that would hurt you. You'll never know enough. <laughs> wow. I like, I like the twang you put on there. Yeah. <laughs> Felt necessary. Yeah. yeah. Set the tone a little bit, but yeah, I mean, and this is clearly like, I found, you know, several articles talking about it and let's see where the specific quote. Bandard. Uh, I'm trying to find a specific quote that McTeer gave a quote about this. And, and that's what he's saying led him to be killed potentially, which interestingly enough, whenever somebody would die of a root being put on them, if that's, you know, their, their psyche made them think that they were cursed and they actually died. I mean, that's the power of the mind. And so they would put like unknown causes on the death certificate. And I don't have this, so I can't verify it, but I, I've heard that uh, whenever McTeer died, it was likely old age and something like that. But there's speculation that they put on the thing, uh, unknown causes, like potentially it was a root or something. Hmm. But yeah, he's just, I can't find the specific quote. It's if you, if anybody's interested, it's there somewhere, but oh no, Is the... Last thing I wanted to touch on with, with Mac Tier was, so we said, we said that he was a part of the Thomas Hayward family and actually their plantation is like on my way to work. So I passed by where this guy's oh, buried, wow. like pretty much every weekday. And so I, as I was digging through the McTeers and trying to figure out like their history, I found his cousins that were established out of my neck of the woods, Ridgeland. And one of his cousins was named Wiley William McTeer. And I just like didn't want to be too morbid and include the dude's, you know, eulogy. But I it did mention in there that he was past master of American Lodge number 98 Ridgeland. And so if you look wow. at this, so do you see, you see the, you know, the Grays Highway going down that map? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you look at Live Oak Drive right next to the Mormon church there, there, that's where that lodge is. And it's right across the street from McTeer Street and Wiley Avenue. Wow. Yeah, dude. Look at that. 
Look at and that. He, here's the kicker. I grew up, uh, well, I spent a significant portion of my childhood on McTeer Street. And my my parents owned the property behind this road. And we so we grew up playing on this property. And it's almost like this was a huge synchronicity for me because I was like, I'm like, I, at the you know, growing up on land that this dude's family owned. <laughs> it's like, it's just so wild. Right. And then also the guy that wrote the name of the, you know, the guy that wrote the book about him was named Baynard Woods. And there's two bridges that are in Beaufort that run across the Beaufort River. And one of them was named after J. Ed McTeer. And that's down here, the Ed McTeer Bridge. The other was named the Woods Memorial Bridge. And that was named after my dad's cousin's father. So whatever that relation is, but mm. it's connected to my family immediately. Um, mm. And it was named after he was a, a cop that got, and so they named the bridge after him. But I was like, a river <laughs> runs through it, literally. <laughs> well, you can be initiated, man, into the local lodge. You might as well go sign up. And, you know, after a couple of years, you being initiated in a lodge, you get some more info. We'll do another full blown presentation, <laughs> fully Masonic. That's Dude, crazy, I, man. There's so I was, many McTeers around this, like all these streets named after them and everything. Like they ran this town. I mean, I certainly owned that property, if nothing else. You know what I'm saying? It, it seems like they did because the Ed McTeer, the guy that we've been talking about, he went into real estate and and a Coffin Point was the main the main like plantation that he turned and fixed up into like a residential area and sold off into a residential community with beach access. So I mean, it's possible that even though you know his family, my speculation is that his family. Uh, the McTeer side was tied up with, you know, some land and, and railroad opportunities. And then whenever the civil war happened, it caused whatever their plans were to kind of fall through. So at the time he didn't have as much standing. And so whenever, you know, Jay McTeer's father was trying to marry into the Hayward family, it was a little bit tumultuous, but so yeah, that was a Jay Ed McTeer, the white wish doctor of Beaufort County. Wow. Right I'm now. not sure. How are we doing on time, man? We still got... Yeah, we got a little more time. How many more okay. slides do you have? Funny enough, this is the 33rd, and I didn't realize that until I was... <laughs> and it's starting the Masonic significance in Charleston. Yeah, so. we'll uh, get into uh, it. I mean, I maybe, think ten, maybe ten go more, through them a little further at a little faster speed, but no, let's, yeah. let's get through all of them. We got plenty of time, right? Roman, uh, you don't have to run. Chad, you're fine too, right? I'm good to go, man. Cool. All right. Yeah. So, so we got Solomon Lodge number one, and that's South Carolina's first ro- first lodge to receive its warrant from Thomas Thine, second Viscount of Weymouth, but the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge in England, 1735, and it was listed as number 45 in a list of lodges as altered by the Grand Lodge, April 18. The lodge was not organized until October 28, 1736, when it met at Shefford's Tavern. The lodge at Shefford's Tavern was the site of the first meeting of the Supreme Council of the Scottish Rite on May 31st, 1801, and is considered the birthplace of Scottish Rite of the Scottish Rite worldwide. So I think the Scottish Rite is different than the ancient order of free and accepted Masons somehow. I'm not sure exactly how their lodge systems pan out, but I thought that was really interesting. They do have a, a, a keystone at the building in Charleston that that lodge used to reside at. So this is just some cool stuff that I found. I was telling you earlier, have any of you guys heard of the book, The Secret by Byron Price? Classic. You've heard of it? The Secret? Like yeah. the manifesting book? No, 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 no. The Secret, <laughs> it's a treasure hunting book. Oh, no, no. I remember the book, The Secret, that everybody was just rampant about like in the, the early thousands. I got you right now. <laughs> yeah. um, this is a treasure hunting book he's talking about. 
Yeah, and I got super wrapped up into solving. There's a one that is speculated to be based in Charleston. And so I, I'm trying, I'll, uh, you know, I didn't put anything about the secret in here, but this is just additional information about the Masons and possible Rosicrucian ties to the architecture and the layout. Like somebody mentioned earlier, uh, something about the layout of Charleston was significant for some reason. Yeah, it was one of the first planned cities. It followed John Locke's utopian plan that he presented to some royal board. But yeah, it's, it was called the Grand Model for the province of Carolina. And they had Charleston centered as like one of these original utopian designs. Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating. I, I didn't yeah. know uh, about the layout, especially the connection with John Locke. But so we're, I'm focusing on this park here, Washington Park, if you guys can see it. The surrounding area is also pretty interesting. But for y'all know, y'all have heard of the Triple Tau in Freemasonry or the Tau? I've seen the Tau of Freemasonry from Israel Regardi's occult books, but no, I, I have never seen this. The key to the treasure. Tell us about this. So Alexander War had him on his podcast and he was talking about, I think John D and the hieroglyphic monad, if I'm not mistaken, goes over how, yeah, it says, we demonstrate here that the quaternary concealed within the ternary. Oh God, pardon me if I have sinned against thee by revealing such a great mystery in my writings, which all may read. So essentially, I think what he's saying is everything that exists, exists within God. And I don't want to simplify such a grandiose concept, but like uh, just to get the point across for how significant these symbols are and how interrelated the, you know, kind of idea behind them. is. And if you look at the park design on Google Maps, you can actually see to me, it looks like they added that little bit of sidewalk shading just to show that the park is laid out in the shape of the towel. And I have been to that park and that's the exact shape. So there's a list that's centered in the middle of that. And it's nice. uh, so George Washington Park, because that's the only obelisk that's really predominant in, in Charleston that I'm aware of. And yeah, so there's a lot of significance behind this park. That's kind of the gist that I'm digging in all into this information in that video I was telling you about earlier, Mark. So I, won't, I don't want to spend too much time on the smaller facts, but the I thought this was inter interesting. The, uh, the Memorial Light Infantry uh, obelisk was unveiled on February 23rd, 1990 or 1891. And that's two twenty-three at uh, the date. So like order of three, two, two skull and bones. Nice. Wow. Inside the park, there's a monument to PT Beauregard, who was a French Confederate general. Huh. And there's also a monument to Captain John Christie, who I don't know anything about, Ooh. but there's a Masonic plaque specifically in this park, and it seems to be very significant. It for the also Masons. seems like he's from Michigan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, huh. I think, yeah, Worshipful Minister of Lodge Number 1 in Detroit. Wow, look at that, Chad. That's your boy. But I just thought that was an interesting connection because there's no, like even the, I found this from a lady that made the video on the park, and she runs a touring company, and even she was like, I have no re no idea why this is here. And I was, so my assumption is because it's like a significant park for masonry and this kind of occulted knowledge, but it's just my hypothesis so far. Okay. You can see it a little bit more clearly there. And you've got a ton of stuff surrounding it that's really significant. The Gibbs Museum of Art, the Hibernian Hall, the Blind Tiger Pub, which actually has a tunnel system that goes beneath the pub and supposedly connects this area of the city, which is under the, you know, local government buildings that are surrounded in this same exact square area. So I, I just thought that was really cool. I was like, this bar has a tunnel system that they can access oh. and 
get to all these different buildings in this area. This is the, what I was talking about earlier, right on this building here, they've got the plaque for where the first lodge stood. And then this is the Hibernian Society, which I don't know too much about, but the the meeting place originally for the Hibernian Society was Corvus Dash Tavern, which is where the park sits now. So it seems to be kind of a significant little area of Charleston for secret societies of all of all kinds. I have an old book on Charleston architecture. And while I was flipping through, I found this picture. And if you look closer at the dude on the right, he's doing the hidden hand symbol. And he's a member of the fireproof building or the, uh, sorry, the officer's volunteer fire department. Mm, with his little half moon hat. I like yeah. his little half moon logo oh, up there. True. I hadn't even, I hadn't even seen that. Wow. And yeah, we got the uh, the same symbol we were talking about. This is closer to the Philosopher's Stone uh, without a square, but it's still, I think, a similar kind of concept that they're trying to pick with all these symbols or at least, you know, bordering each other. And this is carved into the top of the old slave mart. And I have no idea why, but it seems like it's been there for a while. And like nobody I've talked to knows anything about why it's there. So I just thought that was another interesting little tidbit. And this is all slave mart. Yeah. So the Charleston was a huge, you know, point of trade for slavery back in the day. It's, it's part, you know, part of it, a big part of Charleston history. And I think it might've been one of the last ones operational since it was, you know, South Carolina was the first state to secede for the, from the union. Wow. Like, so, sorry. Go ahead, Tara. Um, what were you going to say? The Tau. The Tau was a symbol of a symbol for life and resurrection. Huh. And it was a symbol of its Tama from the Quetzalcoatl myth. Hermes. Yeah. That was very interesting. Yeah, it seems like it's pretty popular. Like, I don't know, it's been adopted by a lot of different cultures and, and stuff like that. And since, you know, whenever it was originally established as kind of, it, it, it could be in and of itself, just kind of an egregore where it's like, you know, one of those symbols that just holds a lot of potent energy behind it because it's been so important to so many different cultures. Yeah, that's it. So that was, that was all right I had on. for the Charleston part. Right on. Very cool. Yeah, that is awesome, man. Very interesting. The influence of the Masons. And that's what I was expecting. I forgot all about the voodoo portion of it. And that's some of the more interesting stuff where those two cultures meet. Yeah. And and I I don't know. It seems similar to, I can't remember what the subculture of kind of like French Huguenot it was, but it was the the people that adopted, I think we were talking about it, the Mardi Gras culture that was kind of being, they get into it in True Detective, like the specific offshoot of Mardi Gras that this type of people practice. And I, I can't remember anything about it, but it was just, it seemed similar. And I'm also interested in like the Catholic influences on voodoo as like these two cultures were mashing for so long. And it's like what intertwined its way into Yoruban, you know, mysticism and created like, like voodoo, like Roman was saying earlier. Right. But yeah. Yo. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, man. Like, especially when you start to dig into the history of slavery, it's like, okay, now who's the big players involved here? You know, like what corporations are these later going to stem off and create down the, you know, down the line. And yeah. And, you know, 
touched on Jekyll Island. I mean, you know, there's a lot going on down here, man. Like I, I, I can't wait to dig deeper into this, this area. And, you know, there's something too that we brought up in that the Florida episode as I, I experienced Florida for the first time. I'll just call it the lowlands. I experienced the lowlands for the first time, you know, just a few months back. I have some new family down there. My mom married this new man and they have a, an airboat company and they do like gator tours and stuff and have like a barbecue restaurant. I'll be down there for Christmas and for the month of December and January. So, you know, we should all meet up. Go to Jekyll Island and go check out all these areas. Anywho, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm so down. Uh, right? Let's yeah, do it. Awesome. Uh, but the but the the concept of these, you know, the spirit that is in the humidity, it's in the water, the 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 energy that the water and humidity holds. This, you know, like there's a lot more memory held within the atmosphere because it's spiritual memory being held and pushed through the land through the water table up through the humid humid air and then out everybody's toroid field and there's just a lot of vibes going on the second i touched ground in florida i was just like whoa like i'm pretty sensitive to spiritual energy i'd like to think and i was i was pretty blown away when i got to florida i was like i can't wait to come back and be more in the humid grounds again dude because one you're just constantly detoxing your your body's always flowing like you're you're purging all the time and so it's just there's a lot of transference of energy that can happen in those areas and yeah i respect the lowlands and when you start to look at how much you know the 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 peoples of our past our ancestors respected as well you know i think it's something to pay homage to and i, I appreciate your your research and your angle on stuff it was really cool tonight bro hey thanks ben i appreciate all you guys like it's it's really cool to be here sitting with you and, and presenting this stuff because i'm usually listening so <laughs> it's it's been fun yeah but yeah I, oh yeah and it just to, that's a really interesting point like as long as i've been like in the humidity down here like i never considered that aspect of it so that's really interesting Mm. Manly P. Hall wrote on the elementals and that's where I was getting a lot of my, you know, kind of guidance from and, and looking at how these different elements have the different spiritual energies attached to them or entities and these elementals that are creatures there. And yeah, it's super cool to check out, man. I'm, I'm stoked to, you know, I, I feel like we've said this with every guest so far, but we probably should anyway, but part two, ready for part two, <laughs> let's dig a bit deeper, you know? Right. Yeah, no, we definitely have to revisit South Carolina and that's why the, the coolest part about this show is that people listening will tune in they'll hear what the the gist of it is what we're looking for and then they'll hit us up and say hey I live you know and such and such maybe we find someone from Columbia South Carolina or Greenville or Spartanburg or wherever else in the in the great wide USA and we're going to piece it together one place at a time and I think what's going to be really cool is when it's all on one map and people can go and have a very unique way of planning a, a trip like the one Roman uh, suggested which I think we should all eventually do an esoteric America in person maybe a video series where we go on an actual tour of a place with a person 
as awesome as Kent, who would humbly host us, I'm sure. Maybe we could check out one of his shows. But Kent, this has been really fun. Any final questions from anybody before we wrap up this evening? I got one. We, we ask all our guests this question, Kent. What's the cryptid situation like in South oh, Carolina? Yes. I've heard of I've heard of the lizard man <laughs> sightings in Bishop think, Bill. Yeah, there's I've heard some of dog lizard man, man sightings. What what can you tell us? I th I think there might be some swamp ape swamp ape activity. I am certainly in the swamps over here, especially in Ridgeland. I was in the swamps, so I would not be surprised to hear some of that going on. Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, dog man, possibly. I, I honestly, I need to look more into the cryptid situation around here. Like I said, I've, I've like, haven't had too many paranormal experiences down here, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's a, a lot to be found. Mm. Yeah. It's definitely a swampy area. Who knows? Maybe there's even some sea monster stories from all those pirates and navigators who live along the coast, but wow. Great adventure here on esoteric america exploring another part of this strange world that we find ourselves in this has been a fun one ken yeah. is there anywhere where people can go and check out your music and obviously you have a youtube channel that you should send the link to me and then we'll put it in the episode description yeah, for sure, man. I was just Kent Woods music on everything, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube. And actually my other channel is ether slash or or ether underscore or. Right. And that's where I just repost good videos that I think are important to keep alive on the Internet. And I also create some content for that as well. Nice. I try to compile some research like I've been doing. I just haven't, I haven't, like, until I put this information together for the Canva presentation, I was like, I don't even know where to start because I just like so much. So thank you guys so much again for sitting with it. Yeah. And let me present it here, man. It was an honor. It was a pleasure, brother. Likewise. Yeah. yeah thank you. I didn't know South Carolina was so witchy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. It was, uh, it was very cool to find out. Yeah, for sure. Right on. All right, folks. Well, we've done it. Our fifth episode. Now that the show is live, follow us on Instagram. We have an Instagram, Esoteric America. We're on YouTube if you're listening on audio. And if you're watching the show... Hello. Thanks for tuning in. We have an RSS feed that you can tune in and catch up with all five episodes of Esoteric America. And onward from here. Thank you for being here, Chad, Roman, Tara, and Kent. Of course, thank you for joining us. Like I said earlier, if you're out there and you want to take a shot at being on the show, just get in touch with us. We have an email. It's esotericamerica at gmail.com right is it esoteric america podcast at gmail.com either way send it to both emails and we'll figure it out that's it <laughs>